Welcome to Shared Instance, a podcast on iOS development by three iOS developers in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm Sam Corder. I'm Alex Argo. And I'm Alex Robinson. This is episode 18. All right, guys, so this is the... We've had our full week of Swift and iOS development videos. How are you guys feeling now? Your eyes all bugged out from watching too many videos? Yeah, I'm having a trouble ingesting all this stuff from the fire hose. Yeah. Just not working. <laughs> <laughs> it was a big fire hose. And still pretty much just tip of the iceberg so far. I've got quite a few more to get through. Oh, yeah. I've got a ton to get through. I've downloaded not every one of them, but a lot of them. And and that's only the ones that I, were, I was interested in, too, so... Yeah, my plan was I start a bunch of them on on the phone app that I wanted to see, and then I've been working from my couch uh, down in my basement, and as I work, I've just been airplaying them to my Apple TV as I worked this past week. So I've gone through a lot of videos. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, I I streamed a lot this past week, but I didn't uh, download... Well, I didn't watch any of the ones I downloaded, except for a few of them on WatchKit. See, I haven't downloaded any. I've just like streamed the the ones that that I was interested in. Uh, see, I got about five terabytes of hard drive space waiting for videos. So, all right, well that works. <laughs> yeah, and I, I used about fifty gigabytes on these videos. So, not bad, I guess. Good investment so far. Cool. Well, so is there any any sessions that so far you're like, all right, this is the the best session or the most informative session that I've seen so far? Anything jumps out? Probably one of the ones that stood out for me was the optimizing Swift performance video. Really? Yeah. So, yeah, because Swift was introduced as this big speed boost over Objective-C, and then there were the early benchmarks that said, yeah, it's not really that big of a speed boost. And... It's starting to get that way, I guess. But they they showed a lot of things in this video that can trip up the compiler or cause it to generate bytecode that's not efficient, not, you know, LLVM bytecode. I'm guessing it's not obvious things either. Yeah, so I think one of the biggest takeaways was, one, not, I think, I don't know if it's new in Swift 2 or if it came out a little bit earlier, but turning on whole module optimizations because before the optimizations were at a file level. So it was hard for Swift to inline things that were outside of files. Like it it couldn't do it at all really. And with the whole module optimizations, it can do that kind of thing. And one of the bigger issues was generics. Oh, and well, yeah, generics was a big issue. It seemed like if you're not careful with generics, they can be really slow. They showed some profiler steps and where they, so they had this big demo with all these collision detections going on and they would show how it was slow. They turned on the whole module optimizations that sped it up, but then there were some other things that were slow and uh, generics was one of the big things that was slowing it down. And there were a few tips and tricks as far as like working out how to effectively use the generics to get a better performance out of the compiler. 
it's something to do like the compiler has to be able to reason out about the generic itself otherwise it has to generate some um, cheaper or more expensive to run code uh, if if it can if it can reason out something about the the uh, generic itself then it can kind of make a copy of that generic method that's specific to those types going in whereas if it can't then it's got to use a more generic form That sounds really complicated, but I'll take your word for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in a way, it just came across to me is avoid generics unless you know what you're doing or don't care about the performance so much. Or maybe whatever you're doing isn't like on a gigantic data set, so it won't matter in the long run anyways, or is that will it always matter with generics? I can't imagine it's that big of a performance hit, is it? Well, some of these, like a lot of the things it was doing were a lot of re- retain and releases, which were costly. That was like the most costly thing in these uh, these steps, and these profiling steps that they were going through. And I imagine on lesser hardware, you know, like our little iPad minis and 4Ss that are still hanging around out there that are going to be running iOS 9, that it should be something to look at, at least. Yeah, but I guess just going back to the, you know, theory of don't over-optimize, kind of do your coding, and then at the end, if there's things that are really slow, that's when you, I guess that's my approach, is then you dive in and say, okay, I need to fix this somehow. Maybe I've removed generics, but... It seems like that's kind of a micro-optimization that if you obsess about as you're coding, you'll just get, like, you'll drown in all those little <laughs> micro-optimizations. Yeah, it's something to be aware of, I would say, but while you're writing the code, but I wouldn't run the profiler until I'm close to delivering to QA or after even. And I'm sure if it's a performance issue that Apple has brought up themselves compiler teams already working on ways of tuning that so I'm, I'm sure it'll get faster over time generally having more type information usually helps the compiler do smarter things yeah it, it was just interesting some of the little gotchas that you wouldn't necessarily think were that bad but turned out to be fairly significant definitely early on people who were pushing the limits of type inference we're making the compiler work a lot harder than it needed to. <laughs> yeah, I I know the guys at the at Thoughtbot that they run that um their podcast that they were talking about their project Argo that was stressing out the compiler a lot and even causing crashes when you would turn on the release mode. Sometimes there was things that they were doing wrong or changes that didn't get fully refactored that would cause issues. But So what did you guys like? Um, well, I guess a couple of the videos that I decided to watch first were pretty much all of the WatchKit videos as they came out. And I'm not sure because I'm you know, not planning on spending you know, the next entire year of my life dedicated to watch apps or anything like that, but 
um, I was just kind of curious what, what they had done for their native SDK, and I was kind of surprised how how little of an API we actually got compared to, like, iOS. Yeah, it's still a rather thin API, and the the API that, or the libraries that are available on the watch are relatively thin, too. I mean, they said we got new access to some some new things and we we do we can record voice and we can like read the heartbeat just from the existing health apis but i guess now it's more up to date since it's actually on your device but um like i was expecting to be able to you know write some uh core graphics code and draw some elements and i don't think that's happening i, I mean from what i can tell it's still the exact same WatchKit API that we had before. It's just faster now because it's running on your device. And they gave us some new stuff, too, and changed some things. They mentioned rich animations in, in one of the overview slides. Did that not get covered at all? Well, so, like, the example of how do you, like, animate, like, selecting, like, using the digital crown to select something, you basically have a image picker um and the the crown changes what image in an array of images is shown in the image picker so <laughs> at least that's my understanding of how like if you wanted to do something along those lines work so it it's still like you create a ui image with you know an array of 60 or however many images and you scroll through it with the the picker it's actually kind of clever all of the stuff they overloaded the picker for cuz you can you basically like turn off the scroll bar and then it's, you know, you watch as it changes the frame that you're actually viewing. But it, I was kind of surprised. I, I would have thought they would have done it differently, but maybe this is all for performance reasons or something like that. Well, the, the app architecture is very much the same as watch kit one. Mm-hmm. It's only that the extension is running on the watch this time instead of on the phone. Yeah. So you still have all the limitations where you can't dynamically throw in controls at, at runtime. Um, I didn't get to look at what they did with tables, but I'm, I'm assuming they still don't have like a prepare for reuse kind of thing. You just have to load up your entire table still. Yeah, although it'll be a lot quicker. Yeah. As long as the the data is on the phone or on the watch already, yeah. So I'm I'm curious to see how this this API evolves. Um, kind of disappointed, but I guess maybe they're just trying to keep battery life good. I don't. That's all I can figure is why they've kind of taken this route. You now the the battery life is definitely. Uh, Typical seed one battery life, if not worse, for me. Eh, my watch still is doing pretty good for the day. Really? My watch typically doesn't make it through a full day anymore. I would tend to have it... It would tend to go through the entire day with 40 or 50% left over. And now I'm lucky to make it to 9 o'clock with 10%. I guess I'm looking at my watch now and I have 54% left, but my sleep schedule has not quite been uh, a normal sleep schedule as of late. <laughs> uh, 
for any any of the listeners, I have a a new baby, so I may go to bed at five a.m. after the last feeding and wake up at ten or something like that. So that that may be why I'm at fifty four percent right now. But <laughs> yeah, it could be. I don't, I don't know. know. And the phone the phone battery life for me has been pretty rough too. Yeah, it is. It's definitely been been rough even on my 6s, which I never had any issues lasting throughout the day until now. But I mean, it's it's the seed one of a beta, so yeah, you really shouldn't be installing it on your main device. Even though I I've, I've done that with all of my devices because I'm an idiot. Just just <laughs> just so we're clear, if you install all these beta bits on all your devices, you're not very smart, and I'm not very smart, so. Take that for what it's worth. <laughs> You've got backup devices. And the watchOS update requires you to update your phone that you have it paired yep. with. So right. uh, you can't do one without the other. Yeah, that was kind of, that was the straw that broke the camel's back for me. I was I was actually gonna use a a test phone at first, so I put iOS nine on like a test device I had laying around and I'm like, oh wait, I'm gonna lose all the data I had for my watch app which admittedly isn't that much but i want to you know keep those green circles and all that stuff going (laughs) so i ended up being like all right well if i can do a restore from ios 9 back to 8 which by the way i could um i was like all right i'll put it on my main device and if something horrible happens i can always revert so that's that's what i did (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I haven't reverted. I've thought about it, but I've just taken to carrying around a second phone and a SIM card eject tool. That's definitely one way to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of battery life, there was definitely an emphasis on improving apps for the watch and the phone to be better for the battery as well. Um, Part of that was introducing new tools into Xcode and several talks related to improving battery life. So it's obviously something that they're very concerned about between multitasking and and the watch. So I have to imagine those betas are going to get a lot better in the next few weeks. Yeah, I would would definitely think so. Maybe by the time they release the consumer beta, because I I think it's probably going to be close to a release candidate. Hopefully, by the time they they do that, otherwise, there are going to be some really angry people and some articles written about how the public beta has horrible battery performance and stuff. So. <laughs> well, I think the public beta for OS X last year was limited to a certain number of people, wasn't it? Like, you had to go and actually sign up and... Yeah, but I think because of the limited, like, actual usage of OS X, like, it was like a million or two and they I don't think they actually ever filled it up all the way or they may maybe they did towards the end but it was enough so that if you wanted to you had plenty of time to do it it may be different with iOS since there's orders of magnitude more people but we'll see yeah my theory behind the bad battery life is that Apple is getting a lot of testers to try out the low power mode in their phones and their watches <laughs> I think it's all the debug crap that they have turned on, but yeah, it could be. <laughs> it's a side benefit. So Argo, you watched some watch kit videos and Alex, what were some of the ones you watched today? Cause you, you were talking earlier about how you did a big binge watch. Yeah. 
uh, one of the the big series that I watched was around auto layout. Uh, they had a two part series on mysteries of auto layout. And they did a great job of kind of answering a lot of the the challenges that developers face in designing for auto layout and common issues they run into uh, in debugging. So there are a lot of great tips on how to do auto layout better and, and solve some of the common problems. So definitely recommend watching those videos. And if you're not using auto layout, pretty much can't avoid it now. And you're practically required to use it now. There are, there are people that do and I, yeah, you're required. People yeah. that avoid using auto layout still. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, don't get don't get me wrong. I have some code that still is not on a layout, but anytime I go and do something new, yeah, it seems like the, the easy choice to make. Well, it's great. I just I get to delete a lot of code whenever I do that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, all the horrible layout code I have. We still have a lot of it in our act. Just doing manual layout. It can be horrible. Lines and hundreds and hundreds of lines of code. Yeah. Well, you're an OpenGL app too, so. There's some of that, but yeah. And kind of along the same lines of auto layout was the introduction of the UI stack view, uh, which handles a lot of the constraints for you for for views that that can stack horizontally or vertically. It'll size to the content, and some really nice tool integration with Interface Builder for using that. Yeah, I believe the Android guys called that linear layout something that they've had since the 1.0 days yeah i was yeah, i was jealous of that and, yeah i think that's the the major feature of what came out of dub dub 15 is ui stack view in terms of things that i wish i could view, use today but i'm gonna have to wait until more of my users are on, are on ios 9 well, how complicated do you actually think the code for that stack view is? The general layout concept, really? I think, is not too bad. But the fact that it automatically handles your constraints for you, I think, is probably the, the biggest thing for the buck that you get with UI stack view. Is you could build the same thing, but you wouldn't get the, all the magic that comes with it. And the integration with interface builder where right now you can highlight a group of controls and say embed in stack view and you're done. Yeah. That's a nice benefit right there. But if you were supporting iOS eight and up, then presumably you could use a framework and then you could use the IB designable, which I haven't done yet. I haven't tried any of the IB designable stuff yet. It's on my, it's on my list of to do's, but you could use the IB designable and then still do all of your editing right there in Xcode, right? You just wouldn't get the embed in my custom stack view. Well, you would have to handle the constraints yourself. Right. And I don't, I don't know. I don't know if that seems that hard to do. It's not sure. that hard on a one-off to do it generically for a lot of different things is probably gets a lot harder. I'm actually building something similar to that now for an app we have in production, adding a, a new dashboard screen 
and I've got a lot of widgets that get stacked up to build out the dashboard. So can we look forward to an AR stack view coming out soon on GitHub? Probably not. I I think I would <laughs> say wait for Apple's implementation. I've had enough bad experiences with backports recently that I don't want to contribute to that. <laughs> yeah, they're they're never quite as good, but I feel like we've got the tools these days to do a lot better than we used to. I don't know. It sounds like a world of pain. And the UI stack view actually keeps track of two different sets of sub views. So it's a little more complicated. So in addition to sub views, there's another collection of sub views and UI stack view handles keeping them in sync. Make sure if you add to one, it's um, if you add to the other category, it adds it to the, the regular sub views to make sure it's in the view hierarchy. Uh, I didn't hear about that. What, what is it actually doing? Uh, it's keeping, I, I don't have the documentation in front of me, but um, it keeps track of like alignment and things like that. So kind of like what's visible and, and what's in the view hierarchy are not necessarily the same thing. Oh, yeah, that's true. That was one thing that was definitely a, a bonus on the stack views, was setting that thing to hidden, and then it just stops participating in the layout altogether. Definitely a nice feature there. Yeah, it seems like they they made stack view for WatchKit, which is basically the only layout that you can do in WatchKit, and then they were like, oh, let's bring this to iOS, too. It's really <laughs> convenient. <laughs> Like I said, they had a version of that for OS ten, which was the NS stack view. So it was it's been out there a little while for OS ten. Now ported to iOS and a little bit better performance. I did find an iOS port of NS stack view from mid of last year on GitHub if if you're feeling bold, Sam. <laughs> Almost just to kind of throw a little some dirt in uh Apple's eyeball and say, say, you guys spent all this time talking about stack view in your conference and here it is in 500 lines of code. I don't have that kind of time, so I'm not going to run my mouth off anymore about it. One thing I was hoping they would show was then take your UI stack view, embed it in a scroll view, and now all your <laughs> auto layout pains with scroll views goes away. They didn't show that. Can but, you do it? <laughs> I don't know. It's probably like you know? crossing the streams. You're not supposed to do that. <laughs> um, generally, with UI scroll view, you want to have a containing view to handle the constraints. Yeah. But I, I think that's one of the things a lot of developers struggle with is when they want to put content into a scroll view um, with auto layout, it tends to be ambiguous at design time. So it's it's really hard to get it right. Yeah, there's a lot of caveats and things you have to watch out for when you're trying to do that. And they didn't so, touch on that in the sessions that I've seen so far. Yeah. NS stack views were available in OS 10, 10.9. So they went from there to the watch to the phone now. It's a different than normal progression. Yeah. 
It's like the opposite of what you would expect based on where people use stuff. Yeah. So I like the the what's new in Xcode though. That had some interesting tips and tricks. The one, and I don't know if this is available in current Xcode or not, but you could shift click on someplace in your storyboard, on like in a view. And if that view was hiding another view, you would get a list of those views. What do you mean by it's hiding the view? So let's say you've got like a good instance is a scroll view embedded in a view, and that scroll view is got equal width and equal height. So it's completely obscuring the view underneath it. And you want to get to that one, you would just shift click. I think it was shift. And there you it would give you a little drop down list of all the views that were above that in the hierarchy. Well, there is some improvements with subviews in interface builder. If you watch the implementing UI design in interface builder, it shows a a few of those new features. So if you have a subview that may not be visible, you can click on a little UI view icon and it'll show you the, the hidden view full size. So check out that video. That's definitely a new feature. That part of it mm. anyway. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's definitely some cool things in there. It was it was nice that a lot of these videos would show you neat little tips and tricks like that the pros do. I know. Yeah. Well, who's more professional at using Xcode than the guys that are writing it, right? I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. They they know what little hidden gems are in there because a lot of them put them there. Yeah. Some of those keyboard, like check out all the cool keyboard shortcut sessions from previous WWCs. I don't think I saw one this year. Although maybe there was. It's always like, oh, you can like navigate all of Xcode just using like Command Option Shift and like some number keys it's crazy yeah or command j and then all of a sudden you're able to oh, yeah. pick whatever views are... <laughs> yeah i've i just recently rediscovered that one and it's i've been using that a lot so yeah. so one of the the other interesting group of sessions that i i watched were the security in your apps and privacy in your apps sessions and I know we talked a little bit last episode about kind of, you know, Apple's stance on security uh, and how, whether or not it it is definitely the best thing for for everyone, just because maybe they won't be able to do all the cool stuff, but uh, that like Google does, but they're putting their money where their mouth is for sure. And they've made some, some fairly deep changes to the SDK kind of along those lines. The two biggest ones were uh, by default, all of your traffic will will be HTTPS using like the latest version of TLS 1.2. Uh, by default, of course, you can like whitelist, you can say, okay, I don't want to opt out. I don't want to do that. If you have like some old system that doesn't support that or you just want to do HTTP traffic. Um, but I, I thought that was a pretty bold move one of the other things they've done is is basically cut out a bunch of loopholes uh to find out what other apps that people are running on their device um so the the two are you can't 
just do a billion queries of can't open URL anymore. There's actually, you have to say in your info P list what URLs you're going to query for. And if it's not in your list that you've supplied, it will just return no, as if it's not on the device. Oh, that, you can't open it. That's an interesting one. And if you're an older app, they're going so far to say even if you were linked against iOS 8 SDK, um, there's a limit of 50 that you can do. And after that 50, it'll just cut you off <laughs> and it'll say no for everything. Is that 50 unique ones or 50 actual queries? 50 URLs is how they put it. I, I assume like if you, you have like a base URL and that's all it's tracking. Um, but I'm... I'm not 100% sure. I've seen some people filing radars about this, like citing some legitimate use cases. Uh, and they actually have the same limit in place for um, open URL. So if you try to open URL in more than 50 apps, it, it'll cap you too. And I think people are trying to get that changed. Uh, so we'll, we'll see if any of that changes later on. But... Um, they're basically trying to stop what, you know, I think Twitter was doing it and I'm sure like all the ad networks are doing it too, where they basically have like a list of all the apps URL schemes. A lot of them are just like Facebook ad schemes for any app that has Facebook authentication. Uh, and they have like a list of thousands of apps bundled in their in their app so they can get a list of all the apps that you have installed on your device to kind of target ads towards that. So Hmm. Uh, the other the other thing they did to stop this is another thing people were doing were using some sysctl commands to read the currently running processes, you know, <laughs> yeah. and they they basically stopped any iOS devices from or any iOS apps from making a a call on that that sysctl call. So that kind of sucks if you're like one of those apps that like gives you a list of running processes, which kind of was on the skirt of the app store guidelines anyways, but now you're definitely gone. Yeah, that, that was probably always a weird thing that was something that you would not expect to be available in iOS as a developer. It goes against the sandbox, it seems. Mm Mm-hmm. But it was there, and now it's not anymore. Uh, but yeah, there. I mean, watch out for that stuff in your apps, because I know I probably would have been trying to test, you know, like Facebook login or something like that in my games <laughs> next month. And if I hadn't seen this session, I would have been like, "Why isn't it working?" <laughs> <laughs> well, I wonder. I wonder if that includes HTTP as well. I, mean, I guess you would assume that you wouldn't have to say can open URL and pass in HTTP, but yeah, you just... shouldn't have to do a check for it, but right. But just, yeah, I'm not sure launching a URL, an HTTP URL from your app. I think the standard that... protocols probably are whitelisted. I'm guessing it's just the custom URL schemes that they're concerned with. Yeah, and I, their their theory is, you know, we've given you extensions, we've given you the the app links, we've given you, um, um they've probably given us other ways. I'm, that's the only two that I'm thinking off the top of my head recently they've given us, but they've given you ways to talk to other apps, 
Uh, so stop using URL schemes. Uh, and if you're not, then we're going to kind of limit you. So beware. <laughs> <laughs> but that just plays into the whole theme where they've been bashing Google lately for right. their privacy violations or less than less than savory maybe privacy issues that Google could have. Mm-hmm. They could just be spe- spreading FUD. But I'm pretty sure Facebook uses those schemes to figure out what apps you have installed in order to advertise because that's they recommend you create a custom scheme for your app for your Facebook ads and based on that they'll determine what ads to show you hmm. yeah well and even like using using them for authentication I still feel like that's uh, probably an allowable use of URL schemes. Yeah. Now Facebook is doing something else with it, which maybe is where they're crossing the line, but they they kind of do need that you the URL schemes to be able to like I could see having 50 apps or more than 50 apps that have Facebook login if you have more than 50 apps on your phone. So, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, so Facebook will actually fire back into your app with the open URL. Yep. Yeah. And and if it's just the can open, you know, they only need they only need to call open after you've called them. So that may not be a big deal, assuming that they lift the limit on open URL, but it seems like even like Facebook could run into some issues if they don't get some of this stuff taken care of. Although they could say, Okay, we have a new SDK, you need to use app links whenever you want to log in. Hmm. Um I'm not sure how that gets you back into your app, or maybe they could use an extension or something. I'm not sure, but I wonder if we get a new version of the Facebook SDK before iOS 9 launches. That'll (laughs) that'll be super fun, for sure. Yeah, if a lot of apps have to scramble to update, that'll be a pain. Yeah. Or they just won't be able to update to iOS 9 because of these issues. So what what else did you guys see that was cool? I did enjoy the code coverage videos. Video. Yeah, I mean, anybody who listens to the podcast know we're big fans of continuous integration and unit testing. And code coverage is definitely an essential tool in order to track that you're testing better, or at least more thoroughly. And yeah. it's always been a very challenging thing to introduce code coverage. And I think most people don't even get very far with that. Argo, you've added code coverage for your projects recently, yeah. haven't you? Yeah, we've got code coverage running. And it always like makes me wonder if I should just keep with what we're doing, although it'll probably break at some point or switch over to the kind of more limited Apple approved method now that we have that. We also just implemented uh, UI automation to get some automation tests running and now that seems to have been deprecated as well. So yeah. it'll be it'll be fun figuring out what to do with those features. But yeah, I love I love code coverage and uh hope there's a open radar now, I think uh Alex found because right now you just get kind of a binary plist format that 
no one else knows how to read. So there's open radar to kind of have Apple uh, write to some format that is easily readable by, you know, other continuous integration uh, systems. So file your radars too to support that effort, uh, maybe with your specific needs involved. They don't just like straight up dupes of, of radars from what I hear. From what I hear, they work on things basically by how much radars they get. So if mm-hmm. you get a lot of radars for something, it's more likely to get attention. And this is the time right now, if you have any radars, anything that's broken, that it, it that you should probably file it if it's related to anything in iOS 9. Because the longer you wait, it, it seems like the, the odds go down greatly for them to make major changes after you know the first beta has gone out and even the second beta. Well, they so. they made some significant changes to Swift in beta in the early betas and even later betas. Swift is a kind of a different case because they're like we're not guaranteeing guaranteeing binary compatibility or language compatibility. It will break. I mean, they went and said that ahead of time. Right. And you'd expect it even today. I'm sure there are a lot of sessions from last year that just aren't relevant anymore because they're full of code that doesn't doesn't work anymore right but like right after like the period right after the first beta they they make some more changes just uh for things that they didn't think of and you know now that all the developers have access to it they've been like oh maybe we need to do this instead of that or, or whatever but it seems like that solidifies pretty early on whereas swift kind of is an ever-changing thing, although they have, you know, said that they're going to stop shipping the uh, Swift library with each app, and on iOS 9, it'll be bundled in, so I, it seems like even Swift is should probably get locked down a little bit in terms of changes. Yeah, and certainly by July, late July, they're starting to get the the OS actually certified with the carriers. So it's going to be much more locked down at that point for sure. Yeah, one of the other cool things that was in that code coverage uh, and continuous integration talk was that there is now a REST API for uh, Xcode server. So it makes me wonder or hope maybe that there's going to be some plugins that come out for existing CI systems that basically call into that and so it'll just build through official tools and have a very simple API and you won't need to be writing your own command line builds for everything anymore. I don't know if that'll actually come come to happen but that, that seems like it would be pretty cool. I'm not sure how I feel about that. Now, I can understand if you've got say multiple projects like a server side project that you would want to kick off a build and then kick off a client build as well. But I'm not sure about like how making Xcode server a slave to another CI server would work out. Well, it, I mean, the only thing I that I can think is it would hide some of that complexity that we have to deal with every day to do that. I mean, most people have either other OS apps that are building in continuous integration or like you said, server app or something like that. It's not normally not just 
an iOS only or iOS and Mac OS 10 only right. application. Right. Even though Apple would like us to believe it is. Yeah, they they're they still reference cross platform to be <laughs> Mac OS 10 and iOS. And now WatchKit. <laughs> and WatchKit now, yeah. I think a couple of the big use cases for the REST API is to be able to kick off a build through other means as well as have something where you can build a dashboard that summarizes maybe multiple projects from maybe multiple build systems into one unified dashboard. But or just I'd, having a menu bar widget would be nice. Yeah. Yeah, it could work. I don't and know if there in is the one demo now. they kicked off a build from a a big red button, button that was plugged into yeah. <laughs> the easy button. Yeah. <laughs> That was kind of cool, and they had a uh, little app as well that queried the the integrations for a specific bot. So it's uh, there's there's some potential use cases there. Yeah, that could even make a nice iOS app. Yeah, as long as as long as your device is on the same network, be pretty easy. Yeah, Mm -hmm. you don't necessarily. I mean, as long as you're Xcode server is at a URL and publicly accessible. You could, it doesn't have to be on the same network. Yeah. But I don't believe that REST API has documentation posted yet. So it'll be interesting to see the full breadth and depth of the capabilities there. It's possible you could get the code coverage report through the API. That would be nice. Yeah, we shall see. That would be cool. Yeah, it has all kinds of implications for, like, just say, integration with bug trackers. Uh, Trello, for instance. One of those things that's kind of near and dear to us. Yeah, I mean, the Xcode server itself has a lot of things that it does kind of between builds. Like, it it'll track down like which commit caused a bug to happen if some test starts to failing, which most CI servers don't have that fine-grained information and they just run whenever they run. So if you got 10 commits queued up and a build is like, it's somewhere in here, good luck. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that depends on what kind of hooks you have with your Git server too. Well, even if you say build with every commit, I've, I run into cases where, okay, I did all these in a branch, so it doesn't build all of them, or, you know, there's there's all kinds of cases where it wouldn't build, or there's 10 projects, so it takes, you know, 20 minutes or something smaller, hopefully, to build all of your projects, and there are multiple commits in that time period. Yeah, there's and there's always the quiet period between commits, too. Yeah. Another thing they demoed in that session was having a run script that would change the app icon and the settings bundle based on whether it was a internal test build or a production build. That was kind of interesting as well. Yeah, it was I think you could do that like before just with a shell script, but it was kind of cool how they how they did it just within the Xcode 
what was it like the in the Xcode servers? It was just in there, right? I don't remember if it was in the in the bot or um just a build run script. Uh, but they did use it was, Swift it was somehow just, for one of the triggers. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it used Swift and it also I think even pulled out the the build number from the server, so it was using the Xcode server's build increments, which is that's right useful. Which was probably just an environment variable. Yes, they they did say they exposed several environment variables that you could use in your mm-hmm. in your triggers or with any shell script yeah. that you're running. Although most CI servers will have their own build auto increment build number that you can use if you want to do something along those lines, yeah. but Xcode has one too, and you can use it. So yeah, the Xcode cool. server, the bots on the Xcode server are really nice. Integrates great with the IDE. Uh, I would love to be able to use them, but we're not a iOS only shop, and we we let our customers use our have access to our build servers, so we have to segment usage or access based on the client. So right now the Xcode server doesn't meet that requirement yet. I thought Xcode server did let you segment they they built in some access control in this release. Okay. I'd, that gives you at least one of those things you're looking for. I'll have to check that out. I didn't catch that in the session. They had access control in previous versions, but it was more of a all or nothing or it wasn't a per-project basis. I may have also had that confused with iTunes Connect, which you can... They have more uh, access control where you can basically have a person who can manage specific apps and then dole out privileges just to those apps rather than just the main administrator. So I could be confused. There's there's been so much information that I've been taking in this week. <laughs> right. Never know. Yep. Yeah, well, it's it's definitely a product that is growing up. It it was kind of just a CI light or CI for people that didn't know how to do CI, and, and it's starting to really become a full featured product. Yeah, the one thing that kind of still has me worried is it, it seems like Apple is still kind of delusional into thinking that there's lots of people who can use this because there's lots of people who are, you know, Apple only shops and there certainly are some out there but even you know the most popular apps that are out there have some server component or are also available on android uh and i wonder if if they were kind of took a more realistic view of okay not everyone is just using apple stuff if they focus their effort on you know things that you could integrate better with with jenkins or Team City or some other continuous integration platform. Well, they're not selling it directly, and they're not um, open sourcing it either. So I don't know if I see it going in that kind of direction where the, it could replace a Jenkins or work more well, I, closely with it. Well, I know they're not, but the reason that they started doing a lot of this stuff, I think, is because the developers have been filing radars and complaining to them, saying, hey, we want to do continuous integration. Everyone's doing continuous integration everywhere else. Help us do it on your platform. And what they've come out with is kind of uh, a not invented integration. here. Yeah, it's not invented here. It's it's very Apple centric, and I think they think it's really good and really cool, and everyone's going to use it. And I don't 
maybe just being in that Apple bubble, you know, of all the, you hang out in Cupertino and that's where everyone just works on Apple stuff and it works great for them maybe. But I think it's really cool. I, I think they've done a great job of making it look very appealing and has great reports and probably does a much better job of managing profiles and running builds on physical devices than if you had to build that yourself or you know the reports you get from like a Jenkins or a Travis CI are just very rough. Um, oh yeah, but I that definitely agree. It's it, awesome. It just doesn't solve the problem. <laughs> it doesn't solve yeah, the problem it's universally. A really... Yeah, it's kind of like if you. It's short of uh, everybody adopting Swift for the web when it becomes open source. Maybe that's the strategy. <laughs> just, just wait for the the Swift web frameworks, and now you've got and uh, Node dot Swift Android to adopt Swift as their programming language. You should be good. Hey, you can already program with Swift on Android. Those uh, that Silver from those guys that uh, did. Oh, what was that? The people. They wrote um, Rim objects. Rim objects. Yeah, so they they actually have a Swift port for Android already. Oxygen is that what it's called? Oxygen <laughs> is the C sharp one, and then uh, Silver is the Swift one. Okay. So, kind of staying now, on the tools topic. Um, one of the sessions that I thought was interesting was the, what's new in SpriteKit. And I think that I'm not a game developer, but the tools that they have now for designing game levels and actions and, and such inside of Xcode are, make it look really easy. I'm sure it's harder than it looks, but there's definitely <laughs> I, some really powerful tools there. Makes I me, caught some of that. Somebody said, hey, Apple made Flash. <laughs> because there was a whole big scene editor. Like, you could do a big cut scene. Yep. Editing. And thing the, right there in there. The camera's now a node as well, so you can do transforms and and actions on, on the camera. So, it's pretty cool. Yeah, it does seem like some really, really nice tools. I, I guess it has the same issue that we were talking about at least for me as a game developer with that uh xcode server has and that it's awesome if you just want to build an ios game right but most people don't want to do that (laughs) (laughs) i mean that's the main reason i've really looked deeply into a lot of these things yeah at this point though i think sprite kit is what Cocos 2D tried to be, and Cocos 2D was was great, and probably is still pretty good. Um, but Sprite Kit's definitely taking it up a, a few notches with the tool integration. That they make it very compelling to use their frameworks to build apps or build games for the platform. Yeah, I mean, it might make sense even just to build on one of these Apple toolkits. Sprite Kit or Scene Kit or even maybe just GL Kit, although that one is more similar to other platforms. Um, but you build an app 
or a game with with those tools and if it actually hits then you're like okay well now i need to port this everywhere and then maybe you do a different strategy to do that but kind of encompasses everything i could be wrong but i think pirates plunder did that they built on metal they were one of the early metal apps on the marketplace got it some decent press Mm -hmm. and they recently ported to android so i have to imagine that was a a pretty big effort to port it over yeah i mean i I guess the the benefit to doing that is you you get out quicker probably and you only expend the effort of that that porting which is probably more than it would have been if you did something cross-platform and crappier to start out with so I, I think it could make sense so you don't waste all that time you know at, at the the beginning of things and kind of fail fast if your app doesn't pan out. Well, even the Vainglory guys, which was that game that was featured in the Apple keynote last fall. They got an ADA too. Yeah. Yeah. And that was a metal app and it only ran on the 64-bit hardware. But it had been in development for a few years, so they were really had an OpenGL port that was very functional. And apparently, I remember reading early on, there were ways that you could kind of hack it onto an older piece of hardware, the 32-bit one, and run mm-hmm. the GL renderer. But their recent updates have come out for Android and for older devices mm-hmm. using their OpenGL renderer. So they just have, they just switch out between Metal yeah. and OpenGL. Well, normally you don't want to be writing straight to OpenGL uh, for anything, for the most part. You have some some type of library that, that wraps it. And I mean, even Apple has said, like, for UIKit, on the older devices, everything is still OpenGL-powered, but anything 64-bit and above is using using Metal for a, a lot of the UI code now, and it's supposed to be faster. Although I haven't seen the benefits of that yet. I don't know about you guys. <laughs> Maybe that's why my battery's getting sucked away. <laughs> it's metal. <laughs> yeah. I think we've covered a decent number of sessions. I, I think for kind of the pro tip here is if you're pressed for time, you know, start with the what's new in videos that are in the featured category, and that gives you a great overview of a lot of the new features and, and topics that are coming up and gives you an idea where you can do a deeper dive. Definitely. And also the the State of the Union keynote, that'll give you the highest level. And then the what's news. Will help. And if you're if you're looking for something to, to track, uh, I guess we can do a couple picks here real quick. Uh, you can either use the WWDC app from Apple on your, your phone or, or tablet, but there's this nice open source WWC app that uh, someone built... Uh, that's on GitHub, you can just download the releases from there, and it's for your for your Mac, lets you download the videos and all that good stuff. So it does all the same tracking. So check that out if you want a good way to manage them. Yeah, that one's also nice because it has the ASCII WWDC stuff built right into it as well. So you can read the transcript while you're watching the video. If you're not familiar yeah. with ASCII WWDC, it's a great resource. Folks take the time to transcribe all the sessions so it's fully searchable. So when you're trying to remember 
something from a video that you watched three or four months ago, you can go there and search and hopefully find it a lot faster. I know all the sessions have not been transcribed yet, uh, so it must take a little bit of time to get through all of that. And I used it earlier today to find what which session the can't open URL stuff was in because I heard people talking about it and I was like, all right, I want to watch that session. And turns out I just searched for can't open URL and it was, okay, here, go check out the privacy and your apps video. Yeah. So. Yeah, good stuff, definitely. So... We're just about at our 60-minute mark. <laughs> we to one, do some one last thing this guy. I want to mention is, you know, in terms of the videos, that's different this year than previous years. Is This year, instead of just showing the slides in the videos, actually show the presenter for a good portion of the time, which cha- kind of changes the tones of the session. You get to see the the reactions and, and gestures of the person presenting, so kind of humanizes the videos, makes them easier to watch in my opinion kind of makes you feel like you're more part of the the event so why don't why don't you guys tell us where we can find you on the internet i'm at sam quarter on twitter i'm at alex argo i'm at aj robinson on twitter if you enjoy this podcast help others find it by leaving a review on itunes or mention at shared Inst on twitter 